morning. I'm Pastor Allen, and I'm grateful to be a part of this community of believers who think the Bible is so important that we give it out to our fifth graders and we say to them, let this guide your path. And I'm grateful to be a part of this community that can sing so enthusiastically, come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. That's what we're doing here today. We're here to get our hearts in tune with God's amazing grace. So grab your Bible and find Luke chapter 9. And if you're using that red Bible in the chair rack, it's on page 723, 723, Luke 9. And while you're finding the place, Here's the background. Jesus has been sent by God on a mission, and he's going throughout the length and breadth of Israel, announcing the good news to everyone. God is here. God loves you. God wants to make you whole. So turn around and come back to him. And to emphasize this message, He's been healing the sick, forgiving the lost, driving demons out of the land, and telling amazing stories about what the new world that God is bringing is like. And he's chosen 12 apostles to help him with this mission and sent them out like he had done to heal the sick and to announce the good news. They're supposed to say to the people, God is here. God loves you. God is here with us. And now these people have, these apostles have returned from a grand evangelistic tour when we pick up the story in Luke chapter 9, verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied to them, You, I want you to give them something to eat. They answered, incredulously, I'm sure, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. Now remember, these disciples have just gotten back from an amazing mission trip where they've seen God work miracles, but they have no idea. They have no idea of the wonderful miracle God is just about to perform through them. So Jesus said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down. By the way, they're kind of reclining like it's going to be a relaxed, wondrous, scrumptious banquet. This is not going to be a kind of meal you can grab on the run standing up. 
Then taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke them and he gave them to his disciples and to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. This is the word of the Lord. This is the living word, Jesus, who was with God and who was God and who became flesh, who became human and came down to be with us to reveal the glory of his Father. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, before we... uh, talk about this story, I'd like you just to think about something for a minute. Can you think of something that you really, really wish you had more of? Maybe money, maybe time, energy, sleep, chocolate, love, joy, peace, friends, whatever it is. I'd like you actually to write this on a little tear-off card in your bulletin that you're going to put in the offering plate later today. Would you write on there what, whatever that is, which you really, really wish you had more of? Do that for me. There's a place there for prayer requests. You can put it right there if you'd like. Whatever it is that you're writing down and thinking about that you really, really wish you had more of, it's, um, it's a way for us to understand this basic economic principle of scarcity. At the bottom of all human economics is this idea called scarcity. The Center for Economic Education runs an annual poster contest for elementary school children. And recently, a fifth grader created this poster of the game of musical chairs. This is a hilarious competition where the children run around the chairs while the music is playing, but the problem is there's not enough chairs to go around And somebody gets left out and has to drop out of the game when the music stops. And finally, it boils down to just one chair and two kids frenetically running around and hoping that they'll be the lucky one to get the last chair. It's the basic economic problem of scarcity. A third grader did this poster. Can you imagine a platter full of cookies and a bunch of hungry kids enjoying them But finally, it's down to just one cookie left and a bunch of crumbs and all those hands still reaching out for more cookies. The fundamental economic problem at the basis of all human economics, we are told, is there's not enough to provide all the things people want. And so, class economics 101... Oh, this is moving without me wanting it to. I better, I better stop touching it here. Economics 101. Question, what is economics? Answer, the study of how scarce resources should be used. On a macro level, this means politics. It's our debates about free enterprise versus planned economy. Capitalism, socialism, all these things. On the micro level, 
It's something we face every month as we look at our bills and compare it with our paycheck. And maybe you had this experience of sitting down with your spouse and looking at the bills, looking at the paycheck, and saying, okay, this month we've got to really focus on the basic necessities. Food, shelter, clothing. You get your choice of two. That's how it sometimes feels. But back to our story now. Eighty years ago, archaeologists were digging around in some ancient ruins on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee when they made an amazing discovery. Under the rubble, they discovered a beautiful tile mosaic that pictures the loaves and the fishes from Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000. They realized that what they had uncovered was a very, very old Christian church that was built back in the, around the year 300 A.D., which had later been enlarged and then destroyed by war and had been forgotten about for 1,500 years. And they realized as they uncovered this beautiful mosaic that the locals believed was the actual spot where Jesus stood when he performed this miracle. This beautiful mosaic um, reminded them how important this story was to the early Christians. In fact, this is the only miracle story of Jesus, except for the resurrection itself, the only miracle story that gets into all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It gets more airtime than the raising of the dead man Lazarus. He's only in one Gospel. It gets more airtime than the virgin birth. That's only told in two Gospels. But this story is in all four Gospels because the early Christians believed that this story was a dramatic turning point in history. It's the turning point in which Jesus is introducing a new theory of economics, what we're going to call the economics of abundance. A huge crowd, a remote place, A small lunch, anxious disciples, bold Messiah, daring faith, gracious God. Something new is happening here. The disciples are puzzled. They're frightened by this crowd. They don't know what to do. Jesus, send them away. Jesus says, no, I want you to give them dinner. But we've only got five loaves and two fish. You know, maybe this was the the stash the disciples had brought for their own lunch. I suspect it might have been for their own families. But Jesus says, I want you to take your little lunch and give it to these people. Now, the details in the gospel are very sparse about how how this miracle occurred. It simply says that Jesus blessed this bread and these fish, And he broke them up. I was looking at my loaf of whole wheat bread this morning, and I noticed that uh, if you have five loaves of our modern bread, it would just about provide enough for one slice for each of these groups of 50 that Jesus had organized. Not very much. But it says that after the disciples shared their lunch, everybody ate and was satisfied, and... There was more than enough because they picked up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. 
Now, this is something I'm going to come back to several times in today's message, so I'd like you to practice saying this with me. Can we say it? More than enough. Now, how do you imagine this miracle? It's fun to imagine. Was this miracle biological? Was it sort of like the rapid duplication of embryonic cells? The Bible doesn't actually tell us how this miracle occurred, but I I love that picture. I love that picture of, of fish just sort of multiplying in the disciples' baskets. C.S. Lewis has pointed out in his, his book on miracles that this kind of miracle would not at all be um, beyond the ability of Jesus, the Son of God, to perform because it's simply an acceleration of the reproduction that God is doing all the time as he reproduces the fish in the sea and the stalks of grain in the fields. He just speeded it up. But I love that picture. But there's also another way of looking at this miracle, which is just as miraculous And that's to look at it on a social level. Now, the social level has been described by William Barclay in one of his commentaries. He says this, These people are hungry, and they are also selfish. Many of them had something with them, but they wouldn't produce it for fear they might have to share it with someone else. But when the twelve laid before the multitude their little store... Then others were moved to produce theirs, and in the end, there was more than enough for everyone. So it may be regarded as a miracle which turns selfish, suspicious people into generous people, a miracle of Christ changing self-interest into a willingness to share. This would be an early example of what people today call crowdsourcing. I love this picture, too. And we don't have to choose between them. The Bible doesn't tell us the details of how this miracle happened. But I'm sure we all agree that changing a heart is no less of a miracle than changing a loaf of bread. Some years ago, I was in Africa on a mission trip. And I got to preach one Sunday morning in an African church. The people there were very poor in material things, but they were rich in faith. And they they worshipped so enthusiastically. They loved God so visibly. And after the worship, they invited me to one of their homes to share dinner. I wasn't expecting very much from these poor people. But when I got there, I was amazed to see this huge feast that they laid out. Lots of fish and chicken and uh, all kinds of, 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 of native fruits and vegetables and a special dish they call fufu. And so they filled my plate, and I ate it, and I enjoyed it. It was delicious. When I finished the plate, before I could uh, say anything, they brought more, and they put more on my plate and filled it up again, and I ate that, and I still enjoyed it. And when I finished it, without me saying a word, they brought more and filled my plate again. And as I began to eat my third plate, I was starting to get worried. So I turned to the man next to me, who was a translator that I'd used in the worship, I says, I don't want to be offensive to anybody here, but how do I let the people know that I'm getting full? He says, oh, that's easy. He says, here in Africa, we just unbuckle our belt like this, and then they know they won't bring any more. So I did that, and it worked. 
They didn't bring any more food, and I didn't offend anybody. Now, I don't know where all that food came from. Those poor people, where'd they get it? But what I think I saw that day was the superabundant provision of God being poured out to those people who believed in Jesus and who believed in the economics of abundance. They could share what little they had and make it a great feast. But now, in the story of Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000, we see there's a conflict of two mindsets, two mentalities going on in this story. The disciples' mindset is one of scarcity, just like our modern economics. They see the five loaves, the two fish, the huge crowd, and this cripples them with fear. But here is what Jesus sees. Jesus sees 200 billion galaxies with 100 octillion stars, that's a number with not 29 zeros after it. All of this universe brimming with the power and the vitality of an infinite God. That's what Jesus sees. He doesn't see five loaves. He sees 100 octillion stars. He's walking in the footprints of his father Abraham, who had received a promise from God that God would pour out blessings and descendants upon him that would be like the stars of the sky. He wouldn't be able to count them. Jesus is standing in the footprints of Israel's prophets and poets who all declared that God provides more, can you say it with me? More than enough. He's in the, standing there in the, uh, the footprints of Moses who relayed God's promise to God's people of Israel that as they went through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, they would always have enough to eat. Jesus stands in the footsteps of the poet David who said, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want for anything. You prepare a table for me. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in God's house forever. Jesus stands in the footprints of the prophet Malachi, who told the people of Israel when they came back from their captivity that as they had the faith to rebuild God's temple, that God would open the storehouses and the Uh, floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for them so great they would not be able to hold it. Jesus is an Israelite standing in the footsteps of all the Israelites to whom God had spoken this message that with God's economy there is always more than enough. So Jesus is introducing us to the economics of grace. I'd like you to write down these two texts from Luke and study them in more detail later today when you go home because they are two of Jesus' major teachings about what this economics of abundance and grace is about. I'm just going to uh, mention a couple of verses from this in chapter 12 of Luke, verse 22. Jesus tells his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, 
what, not your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. And yet, God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And verse 29, don't set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagans run after such things, but your father knows that you need them. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. This treasure that will never be exhausted, of course, is God himself, that infinite creator of the galaxies. The economics of Jesus, economics of grace, the economics is that you cannot outgive God. The early Christians really took this to heart. We read in the Stories of the book of Acts, how when they were called together by the good news of Jesus into a believing community, they held their resources very loosely, available for God to use however he wanted, and there was not a single needy person among them because they didn't believe that their things were mine or yours, but they believed that these things were God's for God to use as God wanted The early Christians knew that there is more than enough. Now, here's a very unlikely scene. Can you imagine a little boy sharing his ice cream cone with a little girl voluntarily? I doubt it. This would be a miracle, to be sure. But what if this little boy knows that there is a big freezer full of ice cream cones around the corner that uh, he can have as many as he wants whenever he wants them would that change the way his attitude how he might feel about sharing I believe so I believe that having that freezer full might cause a miracle such as this the economy of abundance means that there's an excess in God's provision which must be shared what I lack somebody else will have what I have, somebody else lacks. And all together, all together, we have the abundance of God. In the economy of God, there is more than enough. So though we're invited to live in this abundance of God... I'm sure you'll agree with me that most of us struggle between the two poles of these two mindsets of scarcity and abundance. I know I struggle. Where would you be on this continuum? You know, on one side, you have the mindset of scarcity, a mindset of fear, or the mindset of abundance, the mindset of faith. You have the anger, perhaps, that you don't have what you would like, 
Other side is the gratitude of thankful to God for what you do have and trusting he's going to keep giving you what you need. The hoarding is part of the mindset of scarcity. Hold on to what you have. You may need it. But once you get into this mindset of abundance, you begin to share like that little boy with his ice cream. Is it the problems that you focus on or the possibilities? Is it the thinking small or the thinking big? What would happen if I could connect my lack with God's abundance? Maybe you know someone who is not sure they have enough money to buy winter clothes for their children, as well as paying the utility bill, as well as giving a donation, a tithe to their church, and helping one of those kids across the ocean who doesn't have very much. Maybe that someone is you. But maybe you know someone who is moving on this continuum from fear to faith and starting to realize that God has more than enough. Maybe you know someone who's not sure if they have enough love to go around. You know, this thing of abundance is about a lot more than just money. It's about many things. Maybe you know someone who is not sure they have enough love to keep on loving that person who doesn't love them back, that person who keeps hurting them through the decisions they make. But maybe you also know someone who is moving from anger to gratitude, that they still have that person to love. And believing that maybe God can keep giving them patience and love. Maybe that person is you. Maybe you know of a church somewhere that is trying to stretch its resources to fulfill Christ's call to love our neighbor and to love the whole world, and yet is not always sure where the money's going to come from to make that work. Maybe that church is you. Maybe you also know of a church that year after year has seen God come through with the provisions that the church needs. A church that can boldly move ahead even though it only has five loaves at the moment because they know that God of the universe is standing behind them. Maybe you know of a person or a church who believes that God can do abundantly more than we ask or imagine. The missionary William Carey put it this way. He said, whenever we are doing God's work in God's way, we will never lack God's wealth. Because there is always... If you have felt any kind of new hope springing in your heart today as you've listened to this story, maybe about that thing you wrote down, it's something you really, really wish you had more of. If you're getting a, a sense of hope about that, I would like you to also write on your little tear-off card the initials M-T-E. Just write M-T-E as a way of telling God that you are believing his promise, that there is always more than enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus. Come, thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Lord, encourage our hearts today to know that whatever challenge of scarcity we are facing, that this means nothing to you. Because with you there is always more than enough. Through Jesus our Lord, amen.